For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I'm still boiling over the British government's latest climate debacle. It involves their plan to ban gas boilers, these strange, at least to North Americans, hybrid devices that heat both your tap water and your house, and instead to require Britons to adopt heat pumps en masse. Now the problem isn't that heat pumps aren't clever. They're basically kind of two-way AC units that compress your refrigerant outside to use the external air as a heat sink in summer and cool your house, and compress it inside to use the internal air as a heat sink and warm your house in winter. But they're economically dubious, if they weren't, people wouldn't need to be forced to install them, and it now turns out they're environmentally dubious as well. The German Federal Environment Agency, aka the Umweltbundesamt, says that the refrigerants involved are a significant hazard to public health and the environment because they contaminate the water. How did Boris Johnson et al. not figure this problem out before they left? As usual, I think, it's a difficulty realizing that all technologies have the pluses and minuses instead of thinking one's the work of angels and another of devils. Thus, it also turns out that these massive wind farms that are eating up vast quantities of natural space and chopping up birds and bats are also, by pulling energy from the air, changing the environment in unforeseen ways. Though one of them should have been foreseen, it's that by sucking the energy out of wind in order to pump it into the grid or batteries, they suck the energy out of wind. Which means if you have one wind farm that's downwind of another, the one that's upwind luffs the next one. Apparently wind farms significantly slow wind speed for dozens of kilometers, sometimes as much as a hundred. What's more, the ones that are placed at sea to spoil the view also reduce the amount of mixing of the sea by wave action, which affects salt and oxygen content, temperature, and nutrients. Now without further investigation, we don't know whether it's bad or not. Here at CDM, we're not the mirror image of alarmists who say every effect of man-made climate change is bad and every effect of any step to mitigate it is good. Instead, what we want is for people to check carefully, report honestly, and then take the findings into account and make balanced decisions. Which, to come back to heat pumps, means despite this problem of water pollution, they might be a good choice, either with current technology, with some readily available substitute, or after developing some new and better refrigerant. It might especially be a good choice if people were inclined to adopt them voluntarily instead of being forced to by the green central planners. But the decision depends on the overall costs and benefits of heat pumps, the economic and the environmental costs and benefits, compared to the overall cost-benefit balance of the technology they aim to replace. So they might be better than coal-fired forced water central heating, but not the natural gas kind. One defect doesn't make a failed technology. All technologies have drawbacks and advantages. And very often so do laws, including, in this case, the European ones that phased out fluorinated refrigerants that were thought to contribute too much to global warming in favor of ones that are now thought to contribute too much to contaminating the water. It's those trade-offs again. The newsletter also discusses Christopher Moncton's inconvenient observation that satellite data now show no warming for the last six years, or possibly seven, a second major hiatus in the 21st century. How can it be since CO2 kept rising even in the pandemic? Even more inconveniently, Moncton quotes the IPC's 1990 solemn warning about 1.8 degrees C of warming by 2030, of which 1.26 should have happened by now. Instead, we're at 0.43, a third of the expected amount, and the models that are programmed to increase temperature of CO2 rises don't know why. Moncton emerges from the thickets of mathematics to say, quote, Come on, guys, when are you going to notice that the sun is shining? It is the sun that is responsible for very nearly all feedback response in today's climate. End quote. And he adds, quote, 
that ends the climate emergency, end quote. And certainly, it was widely assumed by all right-thinking persons that the many benefits of the massive COVID-19 lockdowns would include a reduction in human CO2 output and hence of the increase in atmospheric CO2 because, all right-thinking persons know, the carbon cycle is a wonderful illustration of the dynamic harmony of nature, but human CO2 is yucky and can't be absorbed properly. But while there was a decrease in production, productive activity and use of fossil fuels that productive activity requires during the lockdown, atmospheric CO2 continued to rise as if nothing relevant had happened, but temperature didn't. Now, a possible alternative explanation is that temperature drives atmospheric CO2, not the reverse. As Joe Nova observes in Climate Change the Facts 2020, the famous Vostok ice cores that Al Gore thinks give a reliable year-on-year record of atmospheric CO2 do nothing of the sort. Quote, the bubbles form in slow motion, taking anything from 10 years to 2,000 years to completely seal off from the air above, end quote. Which means that if there were spikes and dips in CO2 during previous warmings and coolings, from the Roman and medieval warm periods to the Dark Age and Little Ice Age cooling, they wouldn't be visible in the ice core record, most of whose data points, quote, are between 200 and 2,000 years apart, end quote. Now that means this idea that current atmospheric CO2 levels are unprecedented in the Pleistocene is unproven. Instead, it may well be that the reason that CO2 was rising in the latter part of the 20th century is that the planet was warming, not the other way around. If you don't think so, why isn't the planet still warming as CO2 rises? It's kind of important to the story. The newsletter also notes that let's hear it for Bill Gates isn't a popular slogan today, and adding and Warren Buffett may not help. But those two entrepreneurs are building a nuclear reactor in Wyoming that sounds very cool, quote, sodium-cooled fast reactor with a molten salt-based energy storage system, end quote. And while it's just a pilot project, if you're concerned about greenhouse gases, and even if you're not, it's an outstanding example of positive, practical, forward thinking, instead of bitter, paranoid demands to change the laws of physics, economics, and human nature by 3 p.m., especially since they plan to put it in a decommissioned coal-fired plant. We won't get into how many of these reactors might fit into Gates' hypocritical 66,000-square-foot, $150 million seaside mansion with private library, 60-foot swimming pool with underwater music system, 2,500-square-foot gym, and 1,000-square-foot dining room, a mansion that could accommodate about 40 typical American houses. Nor will we mention his reckless plan to block sunlight. We're just going to say that new nuclear reactors are far more efficient, far safer, far cleaner, and in all ways superior including that their smaller, modular construction might bring reliable, affordable power not just to rich countries, where the lights already stay on unless our power systems fall into the hands of unicorn power utopians, but also to poor countries where the lack of affordable, reliable energy is a crushing burden, blightening and shortening lives tragically. Now, Wyoming's governor says the state's going to keep producing fossil fuels en masse even while going carbon negative thanks to new nuclear reactors and stuff. But at CDN, we have no nostalgic beef for oil. If these new designs work, we say go nukes, go Gates, go Buffett. We also say go NBC, at least for one story warning that, quote, Florida's manatees are dying off at unusually high rates, end quote. Not because we don't like manatees, but because, and here I know what you're thinking, and I was too, but because the story doesn't blame climate change, not even in passing. Instead, it points to, quote, worsening water quality in Florida's waterways from wastewater contamination and nutrient runoff that trigger toxic red tides and overgrowths of algae known as algal blooms, end quote, that in turn kill off the seagrass manatees eat. 
So there's an example of a story that points to some real pollution, something that is worth spending time, money, and effort fixing. The newsletter also continues the ballad of Steve Coonan, with a posse coming to hang him high with Naomi Oreskes and Michael Mann galloping at the head, and spewing insults like, quote, how many people are suffering and paying in healthcare costs because of fossil fuels isn't the kind of thing Steve Coonan thinks you should worry about, though. That's because his argument in 2021 is as scientifically empty as it was in 2013, end quote. Although, like Facebook's fact-checkers, the posse apparently only read the Wall Street Journal review of his book, not the book itself. Once again, Coonan hit back hard, this time taking aim at the gang who shouldn't shoot straight and their item in Scientific American, saying, quote, Scientific American has published a criticism of me and my recent book Unsettled. Most of that article's thousand words are scurrilous ad hominem and guilt by association aspersions from the twelve co-authors. Only three scientific criticisms are buried within their spluttering, end quote. So, we recommend that you read his response, but don't look for it in Scientific American, which scorned to publish it, to find a refutation of that piece, whose tone, I would like to add, included such mudflinging as, quote, Coonan isn't lying about having worked for the Obama administration, but he's certainly trying to portray himself as something better than he is, a crank who's only taken seriously by far-right disinformation peddlers hungry for anything they can use to score political points. He's just another denier trying to sell a book, end quote. With that attitude, you won't be surprised to hear that the posse even smears the reviewer, Mark Thiessen, because he worked for the American Enterprise Institute. They say, quote, of all the conservative climate-denying think tanks that could coke another industry funding, AEI has gotten the most. It received some $380 million to peddle industry-friendly denial at Kunin's, much of it through dark money pass-throughs to conceal that it's coming from conservative and dirty energy donors, end quote. There's that Oreskes conspiracy theory again. Have they no decency left? In the newsletter, we also present a financial post piece by Parker Gallant about rising insurance costs related to climate. As his insurance company more or less said, get with the program, buddy. You and your stinking CO2 are destabilizing the weather and wrecking your house, and it serves you right. But as Gallant points out, not only did he miss the supposed, quote, increased cost of repairs and increased occurrence of severe weather and natural disasters in Ontario, end quote, that were meant to have affected its premiums, but so did the company because it reported, quote, insurance claims were down 34% YOY, year over year, and down 43% QOQ, quarter over quarter, end quote. So it turns out it was climate alarmism pushing up premiums, not climate change. As usual, we also included Dare You to Post It on Facebook feature. As one CDN reader reports that he did on drought frequency, only to have Facebook tell him to dry up. So here's our challenge, quote, Are droughts getting worse due to global warming? Toss a nickel and then tell me. That's about as much certainty as the so-called science will give you. For Canada and the US, the 1930s Dust Bowl continues to be the worst decade on record. That was 90 years ago, hardly proof of the advancing effects of global warming, end quote. As usual, we paraphrase the IPCC, the Fifth Assessment Report, Chapter 2, page 214, quote, Sheffield and Wood, 2008, found decreasing trends in the duration, intensity, and severity of drought globally. Conversely, Die, 2011 A and B, found a general global increase in drought, although with substantial regional variation and individual events dominating trend signatures in some regions, bracket, e.g. the 1970s prolonged Sahel drought and the 1930s drought in the USA and Canadian prairies, close brackets. Studies subsequent to these continue to provide somewhat different conclusions on trends in global droughts and or dryness since the middle of the 20th century, end quote. Also, as usual in the newsletter, CO2 science says that plants like CO2, in this case specifically, seven African and ten Asian kinds of rice. 
And then they venture out onto the grand stage by reviewing a paper that examines whether the non-tropical northern hemisphere seem to be doing something unnatural recently when it comes to climate. Based on five paleoclimate reconstructions going back between two and 4,000 years, and themselves based on a wide range of proxies, the paper found, quote, the presence of low and mid-frequency variations in them, which have a quasi-periodic character, end quote, in cycles lasting roughly 1,000, 500, 350, and 200 years. We told you climate was complicated. But the overall finding is that, given the tendency of climate to fluctuate naturally, there's every reason to think that's what it's doing again now. Of course, that sort of talk can land a person in hot water, so please send us cool, refreshing subscriptions and donations. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson. Music